Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole in Dallas, Texas, and it's February 2024. Today I examine an unusual challenge facing the Texas courts in 2024, arising from the creation of a new 15th Court of Appeals during the last legislative session. Unlike the other 14 intermediate appellate courts in Texas, this one was not created by dividing off an area from an earlier, larger Court of Appeals. As a result, it does not begin its operations later this year with a full body of precedent to draw upon from a predecessor court. In this episode, I look at some principles and sources of authority that can guide the new 15th Court of Appeals as it begins its operations. With apologies for the pun, the 15th Court of Appeals faces an unprecedented situation. The legislature created the first three intermediate courts of appeal in 1892, and then during the 20th century it created 11 more. For each of those new courts, the legislature carved out, or in the case of Houston, duplicated the new court's jurisdiction from within the jurisdiction of a pre-existing court. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit began operations in 1981 with jurisdiction over several states carved out from the pre-existing Fifth Circuit. Each of these new courts, Texas and Federal, started with a well-established body of precedent inherited from their predecessor courts. But the 15th Court of Appeals has no predecessor. The legislature gave it statewide jurisdiction over specific kinds of cases as opposed to general jurisdiction over cases from a particular geographic area. As a result, that court does not begin with an inherited body of precedent. The 15th court thus faces a novel and fundamental question. What is its precedent? This article examines five sources of potential insight for answering that question. Number one, English common law. Number two, vertical precedent, as described by a 2022 Supreme Court case. Number three, federal court practice about what is called the Erie Doctrine. Number four, generally recognized conflict of law principles. And number five, a couple of historical examples from the 1840s, when the Supreme Court of the Republic of Texas confronted a similar problem with a lack of precedent. First, English common law. In 1836, the Republic of Texas faced a similar problem to the one faced today by the 15th Court of Appeals. Newly independent from Mexico, the young country had no law of its own. The Congress of the Republic solved that problem with a statute that made a wholesale adoption of English common law. A materially identical statute remains in force today, modified over the years only to reflect the obvious fact that Texas is no longer a country. The statute says, The rule of decision in this state consists of those portions of the common law of England that are not inconsistent with the Constitution or the laws of this state, the Constitution of this state, and the laws of this state. The Supreme Court of our state has explained that this statute does not literally adopt the English case law as it stood in the reporters in 1840, but rather common law principles as generally understood and, in the language of the court, declared by the courts of the different states of the United States. Accordingly, under this long-standing statute for Texas, the 15th Court begins operations with the generally understood principles of the common law as its precedent. Second, vertical precedent. In its 2022 opinion of Mitchkey v. Borromeo, the Texas Supreme Court carefully defined the two kinds of precedent that operate in Texas courts. One is called horizontal stare decisis. It involves the respect that a court owes to its own precedents. 
This is the technical name for the challenge now faced by the 15th Court, which, as we've noted, has no precedent of its own. The other, called vertical stare decisis, stands for what the court called the commonplace and uncontroversial principle that the lower courts must follow the precedence of all higher courts. Applied here, that means that as an intermediate appellate court, the 15th Court is bound by precedent from the Texas Supreme Court and, where applicable, the United States Supreme Court and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. The principle of vertical stare decisis, as described by our state Supreme Court, means that the 15th Court inherits the precedent of higher courts, augmenting the generally understood principles of common law that it inherits by statute. Third, federal practice under the Erie Doctrine. While the 15th Court does not begin empty-handed, the question remains, how should the court approach the many questions that are not answered by an on-point Supreme Court case or by general common law principles? Federal practice combined with the unusual jurisdiction of the new 15th Court, provides a constructive framework for an answer. The 15th Court's statewide jurisdiction is intended to create uniformity on the substantive areas within its jurisdiction. That's closely analogous to the Texas Supreme Court's jurisdictional mandate by statute to consider what the statute calls questions of law important to the jurisprudence of the state. Given those similar objectives, it's fair to say that when the 15th Court decides an issue, it's making an educated guess about how the Supreme Court would resolve that point statewide for all the courts of Texas. And that's exactly what federal courts do in cases where subject matter jurisdiction arises from diversity of the party's citizenship when the court must resolve an unsettled point of state law. A federal court makes what is called an eerie guess for the name of the controlling case to predict how the highest court of the state would decide that issue. Within the Fifth Circuit, to make an eerie guess, a federal court works its way down through a hierarchy of resources. First, decisions of the state Supreme Court in analogous cases. Second, the rationales and analyses underlying state Supreme Court decisions on related issues. Third, dicta by the state Supreme Court. Fourth, lower state court decisions. Fifth, the general rule on the question. Sixth, the rulings of courts of other states to which the relevant state's court would likely look. And seventh, other available sources such as treatises and legal commentaries. That framework is a productive starting point for the 15th Court. It is also trying to anticipate how the Texas Supreme Court will resolve a particular issue as a statewide matter. The resources identified by the Fifth Circuit for making an eerie guess and the order of importance that have been attached to them fit well within the 15th Court's mandate. Fourth, conflict of laws principles. The unusual statewide jurisdiction of the 15th Court could present some issues that are traditionally associated with analysis of conflict of laws questions. For example, what if Texas law is silent on a particular question, other than the Dallas Court of Appeals answering it yes, while the San Antonio Court of Appeals says no and the parties are from San Antonio? In a traditional conflict of laws analysis, the party's location would carry weight, particularly if that location carries with it what the Restatement Second of Conflicts of Law calls justified expectations about the controlling law, in other words, the precedent of the local court. That said, the 15th Court's analysis of precedent isn't a traditional conflict of laws analysis. That court isn't deciding whether to enforce a choice of law provision that may give some other state's law priority over Texas. Rather, it's determining the substance of its own precedent, 
even though expectations may have varied throughout the state when the court was created. In fact, the very reason for the 15th court having been given statewide jurisdiction on certain issues is to encourage their uniform resolution across the state. But just because the parties' settled expectations about precedent don't control doesn't make them irrelevant. In determining what a rule of law should be for all of Texas, the 15th court can and should consider the prevailing state of the law and try to avoid undue disruption to the party's expectations when it can. Towards that end, the restatements lists of factors that can guide various choice of law decisions in different areas of law can serve as helpful references for the 15th court, even if those factors do not directly control the specific issue that may be before the court for decision. Fifth, historical examples. Two examples of how the Republic of Texas Supreme Court dealt with a lack of precedent are instructive, not for their specific holdings, which became moot many years ago, but for the general approaches that that court brought to those issues. In the first case, Carr v. Welburn from 1844, an Alabama court resolved a property ownership dispute in favor of the guardian of an incompetent individual. The defendant resisted enforcement of that judgment in Texas on a number of complex grounds, causing the Supreme Court to observe, We find names imminent in the science of the law enrolled on opposite sides, that the mind rests suspended in doubt as to a correct conclusion. The threshold issue in Carr v. Welburn, the ability of a guardian appointed in Alabama to sue in Texas, presented not only a question of first impression, but a question where civil law and common law authority differed, and one that raised matters of what the court called international law, public polity, and general comity between nations, since, after all, the United States was a foreign country at that time. Despite the flowery start to the opinion, the Supreme Court's actual holding was direct and to the point. It followed the most relevant American decision available, a New York case involving a bankruptcy estate, and concluded that the Guardian could sue. The Supreme Court explained, Organized as our system is on the principles of the common law, both reason and prudence should lead us to adopt decisions of courts whose system is the same, especially when supported by the authority of reason and the dignity of names eminent for their proficiency in science and wisdom and their elucidation of the principles of the common law. We should follow in the beaten track, guided by the lights which they have shed, to conclusions correct in principle, guarded by precedent, and just in their effects. That explanation largely anticipates the modern framework for an eerie guess that I was just discussing. In much the same way that the eerie framework encourages, the Supreme Court reasoned that a factually analogous opinion, from a similar jurisdiction grounded in the same general principles as Texas, was the best case to choose to be its precedent. But in the second example, the Republic's Supreme Court took a near-opposite approach, focusing on general principles about structure rather than analogous precedent. The 1841 case of Republic of Texas v. Smith arose from colorful facts, a criminal prosecution for running a gambling operation in a part of Bastrop County that later became Travis County. The defendant argued that he could not be prosecuted in Travis County since there was no Travis County at the time of his alleged offense. Threshold question under the way the law worked at that time was whether the Supreme Court had the power to consider factual matters on appeal, and the Supreme Court held in this case that it had the power to do so. Obviously, this was before the creation of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals a few years later. The court observed, We search in vain in the common law for an instance of an appellate court retrying the cause upon the facts. 
and they acknowledge that the Republic's Constitution adopted the common law as the rule of decision in criminal proceedings. Nevertheless, reasoned the court, we cannot believe that the Republic's Constitutional Convention intended to deny it that power, since the Constitution made a number of additions to common law criminal practice in areas that were not related to the specific question before the court, but that showed a definite intent by the Republic's Convention to recalibrate and reorganize the general common law principles. Those changes, reasoned the Supreme Court, compelled a more active role for the court than in a traditional common law setting. Now, a cynic could say that the Supreme Court just made up a justification to deal itself more power. But a more fair summary is that the court did its best with what it had. It was correct that Texas chose the common law as its legal foundation, but it was also correct that it did so with significant changes on basic matters, such as, for example, the right to compel witness attendance at trial. Rather than simply follow common law precedent, the Supreme Court made a judgment about how those specific systemic changes affected the overall structure of the Texas courts and thus influenced the answer to the specific question that was before it about its own jurisdiction. The 15th Court of Appeals begins with no precedent of its own, but it does not begin empty-handed. It inherits all opinions of higher courts, as well as the collective general wisdom of the common law. From that starting point, the Fifth Circuit's framework for an eerie guess, augmented by the choice of law factors identified in the Restatement Second of Conflict of Laws, provide further guidance for specific issues. Some historical examples from the Supreme Court of the Republic of Texas show that the 15th Court will have to examine specific precedents and general structural principles to develop the body of law that it will need to draw upon for future cases. For upcoming episodes, I expect to stay focused on the courts as the terms of the United States and Texas Supreme Courts will be drawing to a close before too much longer. You can subscribe to this podcast on any of the main directories, and if you like it, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a kind five-star review on the podcast provider of your choice. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.